Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Gary Stewart, the Managing Director of Techstars New York, a serial entrepreneur, and a visiting professor at Yale. So right now I'm the Managing Director of Techstars New York City, powered by JP Morgan. What that means is that JP Morgan raised an $80 million fund from some of their high net worth clients, uh, with the thesis being that we should support and invest in underrepresented founders and underrepresented fund managers. So we essentially, um, it, it program runs in nine cities. I'm the managing director for New York, and I invest in about 24 companies per year, giving each of them a $120,000 check, combined with a 13-week uh, program really designed to help them go from that kind of pre-seed to seed level. That is amazing. So, so is it 24 companies in New York or throughout the nine cities? No, 24 in New York. And then we're also in Detroit, Chicago, Miami, LA, uh, New Orleans, a few other places, but yeah, nine cities throughout the US. And each MD is responsible for about 24 investments per year in um, that kind of geographic area that they're managing. That's really exciting. I can't wait to see the, the results, right, over time. Now, when did it start exactly? Started about like... Um, maybe about like a year, year and a half ago is when kind of the money was raised. And I think the first uh, startups were invested soon thereafter. So I'm in cohort two. Um, some of my colleagues would be in their third cohort, uh, which gives you a sense, yeah, of like kind of a year, year and a half-ish is, is how long it's been around in terms of us actively making investment in these So founders. five years from now, what would be a dream uh, result? Um, as Beyonce saw, said, um, have a Black or Latino Bill Gates. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the thesis really is that, you know, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And so let's help provide the opportunity. Like there are so many amazing founders out there, but if they aren't connected to the right networks or live in the right city, um, didn't go to the right schools or have the right kind of pattern match, meaning, you know, they don't look like the folks who historically have been the ones that have been unicorn founders, then they're usually excluded. So our job is to try and make sure that we remove that. It can't be the case that Blacks, Latinos, and women make up about 70% of the population, but get collectively about 3 to 4% of the funding. The only way you can justify that is if you believe that we're just inherently less talented than that small group of folks who are usually white guys from Stanford um, who get all of the funding. Right, right. Great point. And there's been a lot of, you know, research about that. There's no such thing as free will, right? Mm -hmm. I was just like listening to a podcast, right? There's so much, you know, privilege, you know, in, uh, in many respects, really help stack the cards on one side, right? Yes. Um, all right. So you have a fascinating background. So why don't we start from high school? Mm. <laughs> oh, high school. Okay. So I was... You know, I went to like a kind of all black uh, elementary school. My parents kind of put me in a private school in the Bronx, did the best that they could. We were like immigrants uh, from Jamaica. Um, and then one day I found out about this thing called the Bronx High School of Science, a kind of specialized high school, took a test, uh, got in. Uh, and I think that kind of like changed everything. So shout out to Bronx Science, uh, one of the three specialized schools in New York, where basically it just depends on the test score that you get to get in. I got in there, all of a sudden I discovered debate, I discovered leadership. So I became president of my high school. I was the New York City debate champion in Lincoln Douglas debate, which is what they called it at that point. And then eventually I got into Yale College, where I started an organization, Yale Black Local Forum. At that point, I didn't even know 
about anything called entrepreneurship or that I was founding something. I just knew that I saw a problem, which was that there were no black leaders being invited to Yale, even though there were people like a guy called Charles Murray coming to campus to explain the genetic inferiority of black people. Um, but because he was a professor at the University of Chicago, it was kind of like free speech. Um, whereas I was like, well, what about, that makes me feel uncomfortable. What about inviting people like me to come speak? And they were like, well, we don't have an organization that does that, so I created it. Um, and that was kind of like my first bit of entrepreneurship. Uh, and we had people like Jesse Jackson, Lonnie Guineer, Anita Hill, Sister Soldier, um, all these folks coming in to talk to students about kind of like, you know, whatever it is they wanted to talk about effectively. Um, and it was really cool. The university gave us some funding ports. I guess they were kind of my initial seed investors or pre-seed investors, I don't know. Uh, but that's the way we did it. And we did it for about three years. And there's a guy now called uh, Jamie Harrison, who is the head of the DNC, the Dem Democratic National Committee. He was actually... Uh, the third president of my organization. So that was great. Kind of helped to shape some future political leaders as well. And then from there, I went to Yale Law School. Um, so I did well in college, graduated Magna Cum Laude Phi Beta Kappa. Um, then the next thing for me was going to law school. Um, obviously a good immigrant kid. What else are you going to do? I didn't want to be a doctor, so it had to be becoming a lawyer. Didn't know that anything called business existed or have any interest in doing anything with numbers and stuff like that. That was the way I thought about it at the time. Um, and so went to law school, did well in law school, clerked in D.C. Um, for the uh, D.C. Circuit. So that's kind of the second highest court in the country after the Supreme Court. Um, interviewed for the Supreme Court with Justice Brock Souter. Justice Souter um, was told, oh, you're kind of young, maybe try again next year. And I decided at that point I'd had enough. Time to get off of the hamster wheel and kind of figure out what life really had to offer. And so I thought like that meant just going to London for a year, um, changing from the law firms that I was associated with, going to London, and that was going to be my kind of like gap year, my one year before I came back to America and probably went into teaching or whatever it is I thought I was going to do. Um, and that one year became like 22 years uh, because what I discovered, not so much in London, but more so in Barcelona and uh, eventually Madrid and then back to London, was that when I got to Spain, no one knew who I was. So I, I did one year in London, then got them to transfer me to uh, another law firm in Barcelona, and no one knew who I was. They didn't even know what Yale was. They said, you went to jail? And I was like, no, I did not go to jail. I went to Yale. But it was really good to kind of start from scratch with no one else having any expectations of me or telling me like what I was expected to do. Um, and just being free to be myself. And so that eventually led me to entrepreneurship because once you're there in an environment where you're kind of rediscovering yourself without other people's definitions or limitations. What I discovered is I didn't really like having a boss. I liked the sense of freedom that came from charting my own course. Um, and so eventually I left the law firm that I was at in Barcelona and then started first an offline real estate agency. And then I discovered that didn't have what we now know as recurrence. Uh, so uh, especially in Spain where like four months of the year, it seemed like everyone was on vacation, but you still had the fixed cost of paying for your employees and the offices. Um, and so then kind of said, okay, well, what's happening in the U.S. that I can kind of copy here? And that was Trulia right after the Google IPO and raised some VC funding. I didn't even know what venture capital was at the time, but raised some venture capital funding for that company. Um, and then eventually sold it with my co-founder 10 years later. And then somewhere in the middle of all of that, I started teaching again because I always had the desire to teach at a business school in Madrid called IE Business School. And while I was there, a large corporate came and said, we want to set up a, essentially what we call now a pre-seed fund to invest in companies in our footprint. Uh, the company is called Telefonica. It's one of the world's largest kind of telecommunications companies. And I ran it for them in Spain um, 
and then in Ireland and the UK for a total of nine years, uh, investing in the UK in 187 companies that I think now are worth close to $2 billion. Um, and so that took me through a lot of different adventures, lots of different experiences. Um, but then eventually Yale called me back and said, hey, would you want to teach at Yale Law School? Uh, there's a guy named Joe Sai, the co-founder of Alibaba. He set up kind of a new initiative, giving us some funding to support entrepreneurship and kind of alternative careers for lawyers. And just generally uh, entrepreneurship was kind of a center of the Yale experience both undergraduate and graduate. And so I went back to Yale to teach uh, for a semester. That then drew me back to the US and now I'm back at Techstars. Wow, oh my God, so much there. <laughs> um, that is so interesting. Um, and how did, so did you say Jack Ma supported it? Jack Ma from Alibaba? No, this is uh, 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 Joe Sai, who's the co-founder. Okay, got it. So Joe, Joe Sai is the co-founder and now the executive chair of Alibaba. Oh, okay, got it. Um, and that, and just digress for a sec. How is this? How is Alibaba doing these days? And, and Jack Ma, and we've heard a lot of talk about, you know, the ups and downs and sort of um, the Chinese government. What any insight to that? You know, not much. I mean, Joe Sai came to my class to speak um, like two weeks ago, uh, so it was a really great session. Um, you know, the bit of research I did is that the company is still worth about $225 billion. I think he, he personally is worth somewhere between eight and $10 billion. He's the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Um, you know, he's doing okay. Um, the company seems to be doing okay. And I think like when I read the analyst reports afterwards, I mean, the expectation is that um, the share price is going to jump a lot in the next 12 months. So, you know, I think like, obviously, I think the only thing that he said, obviously can't say anything confidential to us, but only thing he said is entrepreneurship life. You never know what's going to come next. You just have to ride with it. You know what I mean? And I think like that's a good lesson that you need to remember whether you're starting out or you've already IPO'd your company and, you know, are now kind of a multi-billionaire. There's always going to be something that's going to come up. And as an entrepreneur, you just have to deal with it. Yeah. So how do you find the time to teach as well uh, these days? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the thing about it is that the two jobs for me are kind of like very much... Um, connected. I think the, the thing I discovered is that like going back to teach at an academic institution where entrepreneurship, you know, historically might have been like maybe too academic and not practical enough. Like hopefully I'm able to bring together both the academic portion. You know, this is what the case studies and the Harvard Business Review articles are saying with the, and this is how it works in the real world and kind of connecting the two things. But I think it is important to have the kind of like academic and theoretical construct of how businesses operate. Because I think a lot of times founders just kind of jump into it without any sort of discipline. So if I look, for example, at being a lawyer, there's no way you can just kind of like start one day and say, hey, I think I want to be a lawyer. And the next day start representing people and you'd be like, that would be like malpractice. Similarly, you couldn't do that if you were a doctor. You couldn't just one day say, hey, I think I want to be a doctor. Whereas with entrepreneurship, this whole notion that you build the parachute on the way down, I think is very romantic, but I think it's probably erroneous. I think that giving founders a kind of more academic or theoretical construct of what they're doing is probably essential. And I see that in the job at Techstars because founders, a lot of times, even the ones that are getting into Techstars, don't always know what, what it means to be a venture-backable company. They're not even entirely sure about the rules of the game that we're playing because they're too, build, too busy building the parachute on the way down without seeing the wider context of what exactly is going on. So I think like the, the bit about the academia for me is like, 
um, it gives you that larger context of how entrepreneurship fits into the economy, how it fits into how it's related to investment banking, uh, who are the LPs exactly, what is it that they're trying to get out of it, how does that all play together then to kind of shade the expectations that we have of founders, et cetera. So for me, um, it's a pleasure to be able to read through the case studies and to kind of reinforce that academic construct so that I can be more effective with founders. Right. And the fact that you can bring in those guest speakers and bring everything to yeah. life is really, uh, your students are very lucky. Um, so look, you've you. been doing entrepreneurship in three different uh, countries uh, over mm-hmm. time. And, you know, entrepreneurship, as you well know, uh, as I know, it's, it's um, there's some constants and some variables, right? Depending on the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious, you know, take us through that. I mean, first of all, let's start with Spain. You obviously were there for, mm-hmm. for a long while. Um, h- how is the culture uh, of entrepreneurship in Spain? You know, Spain was awesome. Like, I love it. It's still the place that I think I want to go back to and retire. Like, there's hardly a better place in the world where you can have such an awesome life. Beautiful people, beautiful culture, long and, you know, historic culture, obviously. Um, I don't know, like, obviously great weather, beaches, all of it. Um, I think, like, the pros of Spain is that, like, on the one hand, they really want it, right? And so that means that they're really supportive. Like, you know, they went through so many years of a dictator, Franco, um, so that there's a sense of like freedom and adventurism um, that I think is kind of like supportive um, to entrepreneurship, right? The government not, doesn't always get it right. There's still some things on the laws, like the way they treat limited liability that you're like, okay, what's going on here? Like I thought when you close a company down, like you're free, no. Um, so their legacy kind of concerns of that sort. But on the other hand, like I think that there's a desire to not to, to restart the company, right? To kind of have a new engine of growth of the company. Obviously, I think in Spain and Europe more generally, they realize that there's a risk that they become this wonderful museum where you can kind of go and see kind of how it lived, how people lived hundreds of years ago, but they're not necessarily creating the world of tomorrow. The world of tomorrow is effectively being created in the US and maybe China to a certain extent, right? So I think there's definitely that desire. I think the hard part is overcoming the legacy of their culture, right? Which is risk averse, which is no one should stand out too much, which is in some senses, no one should um, have too much money um, unless it's inherited, you know? So I think like the business model in a lot of these countries is like wealthy people belong to a certain social class and they probably inherited the money because they belong to the right families, um, you know, the aristocrats, as opposed to entrepreneurs are the ones that make money and therefore we should be supporting them. I think there is that tension there in a way that it's not like, let's say in the US, same thing in the UK, you get to a certain point where it does feel like a lot of the people who are writing the checks or the people who went to Eton and Oxford were the same people that are running the government. I think like my disappointment with the UK was you get to a point where you're like, can you not see that these people aren't necessarily better at running government or running businesses than anyone else when you look at the state of the UK economy today, but for whatever reason, that's their system. Like they have a monarch and everything stems from there and goes downward. Right. Um, so I think like that was a limitation as well. And then coming back to America, it's like, listen, it's not perfect. I don't love the architecture here. I, um, I'm not always in love with the fact that everyone wears jogging pants to go everywhere. Whereas in Europe, they look nice and they're dressed kind of fancy and stuff like that. Um, so I love definitely the culture and the kind of aesthetic of Europe. But I love the kind of the hustle of America. I love the fact that like an immigrant kid like me can come to this country 
And within one generation, you know, I'm a lawyer and my sister's a doctor and we're both doing okay. And my parents did okay for themselves as well because it doesn't make a difference as much where you came from as how hungry you are and how much you want to hustle. And I think that my experience is like, that's not replicated anywhere else in the world. Right. And we hear, we've heard that before, but, but you're saying that that definitely holds true from what your experience is as far as in Spain as an immigrant, you know, in Spain or, you know, expatriate in UK, it's, you just don't have the same opportunities, but isn't that changing? Isn't that getting better? You know, like a good entrepreneur, maybe, but I just don't have time to wait. You know, time is not my friend as an entrepreneur. And so waiting for the system to catch up is not ever going to be in my interest. Like I need to go where I can run the fastest and not where I have to unshackle myself from all of their legacies. Right. Um, So that's kind of the way I think of it. My life in London was awesome. I loved living in Spain. Like, I mean, day to day, I probably lived a better life than I'm living in New York. Things are cheaper. You know what I mean? All of those sorts of things. Real estate's better. And it's kind of like so many benefits to living in Europe. The one that's not is, um, what is it? A rising tide lift all boats. I need to be in an economy that's vibrant. The U.S. is still, what is it? 24% of the global economy. Like this is the world's superpower. And being in the superpower has certain benefits that you just can't have if you're in a com- an economy that's a fraction, a very small fraction of the size. Yeah. Um, what I want to digress on culture as far as, you know, you hear about the siesta, staying up all night, uh, particularly in Madrid. I, I know as much as Barcelona, but is that true? What's the what's the reality of that? Um, yeah, I took a siesta. I had a two-hour lunch. I had wine at lunch. I still have wine at lunch if I can, except around here, everything's like having a sandwich in like 20 minutes. So I definitely like the lifestyle of um, Spanish culture. I think what people don't usually talk about, though, is that the workday in Spain would probably be from about 10 to 7. So, yeah, you do get like a two-hour lunch if you want to take it. Not everyone takes it. But your workday is extended. You eat dinner at 9 o'clock, not at like 5 or 6 o'clock. So, you know, I think like Spanish will get a bad rap in the sense that they work less. I think like U.S. workers aren't particularly productive, according to what I'm seeing on CNBC. British workers aren't particularly productive after being in the UK. Um, The fact that people kind of don't enjoy life doesn't necessarily mean that they're more productive, right? I think that Spain has a really good balance of like being productive and enjoying life um, in equal measure. I think where Spain loses out isn't really about how hard people are willing to work. I think it's, and same thing in the UK, it's about how ambitious people are in terms of like going back to this, you know, we talked about before, you know, if I'm talking to a Spanish founder or a Latin American founder or even a British founder, I'm like, do you believe you can be the best in the world? Or do you believe that you're going to be the best in Spain? Being the best in Spain, as we said before, in a relatively small market, still one of the top 10, 12 markets in the world. But compared to the U.S., the American is like, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to create Facebook. Whereas maybe in Spain, they're like, I'm going to create the Spanish Facebook. And the Spanish Facebook might be worth $80 million, whereas the Facebook Facebook is worth, I think, last time I checked, $800 billion, right? So it's just a question of the scale of your ambition, which is usually tied to the culture, but it's not necessarily tied to how hard you want to work. Right, right. Now, um, coming back to the U.S., you've been mm-hmm. at Techstars. What has surprised you about the, um, the ecosystem or the entrepreneurship um, environment? You know, as again, compared to the other countries, but also sort of just what you're seeing during this time. With Techstars specifically or just like the U.S.? 
well, you, you're seeing it from the perspective of tech stars, right? So yeah. um, let's just say that's a sort of um, representative of the of the of the country, but maybe it's not. Maybe New York is a whole different, you know, animal. Yeah, I would say like first, like when I came back to the U.S., I mean, in Europe, I had known of the tech stars brand, but like I think being here just to see like how prestigious it is. I mean, I think like our only real competitor, according to some you know, charts and stuff would be like Y Combinator. And so that's a pretty amazing competitor to have. So I think of it like for me in my head, maybe my limited way of seeing the world as like the Harvard and Yale of kind of accelerators, right? They're like the two top ones. There are of course a lot of other really great ones as well, but these are the two historic ones with the track records to justify it. You know, in the case of Techstars, uh, 20 unicorns, 109 companies that have uh, generated more than hundred million in revenue or worth more than $100 million. So there's a huge legacy here, a huge network. All of those are really, really great things. I think like what I love about at least the way I'm running the program is a lot of my founders are immigrants, you know? So they're people like me. Whereas I'm not necessarily sure that I saw that definitely in Spain, most of the people were like Spanish, you know, and probably Spanish people who were from certain families that um, allowed them to take risks, right? Um, in, in the UK, maybe it was somewhere in the middle. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still a lot of like wealthy folks who went to the right schools and that kind of stuff. Uh, in the program that we have right now, we have like two Brazilians, two Israelis, like it is a very international mix and people are kind of excited about the journey in a way that I don't necessarily think I saw in Europe. Like it's kind of like there really is a self-belief that they're going to create potentially the next unicorn in a way that you just don't see in other contexts. I think like people would think it's unrealistic to create a unicorn out of Spain or out of the UK, not because it hasn't happened, but because it happens infrequently um, with more frequency now. So the, that's kind of becoming less true, what I just said. But when you see the companies coming in the tech stars, it's kind of like, you can see that they really think they're gonna be the next big thing. And I think like that level of self-belief is uh, contagious. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Now, what about New York? Now, again, uh, New York has grown. The ecosystem has grown a lot. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, this week is New York Tech Week, and there's 300 plus events. And I know we were both out last night, <laughs> so enjoying enjoying some of those events. Uh, do you see? And there was just an article about uh, AI uh, in New York, sort of um, helping bolster the tech scene. So. What's your take about New York as an ecosystem? Um, you know, is it thriving, you know, compared to others or what are you seeing? Yeah, it kind of goes back to almost the same thing I said, you know, a little while ago, which is that like, you know, it's clear that San Francisco is the behemoth uh, ecosystem, right? So I think like I have the numbers from like two years ago where I think it was like $300 billion in terms of like uh, VC investments. Uh, probably about half of that was San Francisco. Uh, but about 50 billion of that was New York. So New York is not San Francisco in terms of like sheer size of the investments being made into uh, startups, but it's bigger than almost anywhere else in the world. I think it's only gone down a little bit over the last year or so. And it, based on some numbers, people say, well, London is kind of like now tied with New York. I would like to see like what investments in London look like after the kind of like nuclear winter as well. They're using like kind of the numbers when London was like at 28 billion and New York is at 50 and kind of saying, oh, now they're equal. No, London's probably gone down as well. Um, so New York is probably the second biggest startup ecosystem in the world. 
right? And it has, I think, certain unique advantages that, you know, make my job look really cool, which is it's a really diverse city. You know, everywhere you go, people are from all over, like both in terms of being immigrants, but also maybe their first generation, but they're still kind of diverse. I think like that's really cool. Um, the advantages of New York relative to other places, um, it's a cool place to live. Like as awesome as San Francisco might be in terms of being able to, uh, you know, get investments and kind of have a kind of like closed ecosystem that's mutually reinforcing. Um, I still think New York is a better place to live. You know, like I, I love New York. I, I grew up here and I kind of think like it has a kind of attractiveness that I don't think a lot of other cities in the world, maybe except for London, um, probably have. So yeah, I think like there's a lot that New York has to offer. One of which is money to invest right. in companies. Right. Well, speaking of money, where where are we as far as the state of funding? You know, uh, at this point in time, as as we all know, it's it's been depressed. But um, how are you seeing it? And and when is there going to be a bit more light at the end of this tunnel? Yeah, no, it's a good question. If I could do that, if I could tell you that, I mean, the best I can say is the the most recent reports I've seen is that funding is down by probably at least fifty percent relative to like the peak. Um, it's a lot, it's taking a lot longer. So Morgan Stanley um, also run a kind of accelerator program in New York. And so they came to speak to our founders. And so I asked them these questions. What they said was their research suggests that like 2025 is maybe where the public markets are gonna recover, I think, or the end of 2024, beginning of 2025. And then there'll be a lag before that's kind of being felt by kind of like venture capital and startups. Um, so yeah, we still probably have like another good year or two before it kind of gets back to anything that it looked like before. I think though, what it really means is that companies have to be a lot clearer about why they're good investments, right? I think a lot of the pressure is being driven by LPs that have seen, you know, companies like Instacart that were worth $40 billion before the IPO, and then have to go back down to $10 billion, right? Because the question is, where's the money gonna come from? This kind of magical thinking that will eventually figure it out. Maybe there's less patience for that, in the current ecosystem. So we just have to tell founders, try to build a business from day one. Don't just kind of build it and they will come and then eventually investors will keep funding it until you figure it out. And then there probably has to be a bit more of a sense from the beginning of like, how is this actually going to work from as a business um, as opposed to a project? And what about what you're doing is making it like highly investable from the point of view of an investor that wants to get a very big return in 10 years, right? Um, and kind of needs more information and has less faith than probably they had a few years ago. So in some senses, it's just kind of making people be a bit more realistic about what they're doing and kind of minimizing a bit the hype around kind of founders and I'm so sexy. It's like, no, get get back to basics. You're yeah. building a business. Help me understand what the business is. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about the accelerator marketplace? As we know, the past 10 years, it's gone up and you know a lot less now. But it, I think there's been sort of some resurgence a little bit. But do you tell me how you see it? I think accelerators, it's like a term that's become so diffuse that it almost means nothing. I mean, I think what we are at Techstars is we're pre-seed investors, right? Like we put money into companies. And so our interest is in helping them to increase their valuations so that we and our LPs make money, right? Um, there are a lot of accelerators that don't do that, but I think that's a separate category of accelerators. So I think you know, there's always going to be a need for accelerators of the sort that I think Techstars is, right? Because at the end of the day, as we said at the beginning, 
a lot of companies, even the best companies, don't understand how the rules are played. Um, and as long as the rules require warm intros, you're going to need someone to vouch for you just because there's so many companies so early without significant validation. And someone has to be willing to take a bet. And we're that first bet for a lot of the companies. Um, other accelerators that don't do that, um, yeah, maybe that's a little bit different. Right. And, and what about the pipeline, uh, particularly for your for Techstars New York um, or for all the nine cities? Are you optimistic about that? Um, you know, I think our entrepreneurship ecosystem nationally has improved over the past, you know, 10, 20 years. But uh, I have a feeling there's a there, there's a ways to go. But I'm curious to get your perspective. Pipeline, we have no issues with pipeline. I mean, we I spoke to Michael Seibel. He's another speaker in my class this past Monday. And he basically said that right now they're in the process of reviewing the applications to the current or I guess to the next batch of YC companies. And he said they received about 21,000 applications, right? Um, he said it can go up to about 27. So, you know, for us, our last cohort, so, you know, we only take 12 companies. They take like, you know, 500. So we have to kind of aggregate it across all the programs. But for our program, we had about 2,200 applications for 12 slots. Um, and these applications, like I said, are coming from Israel. They're coming from Latin America. They're coming from all over Europe. So the question is, can you find 12 or 24 good companies or good enough companies, um, meaning that there's enough there for you to be willing to take a bet on, um, help to work with them to turn them into the next Airbnb? Definitely. Is that number infinite? That might be a different question, right? Um, but I think, is there enough? Are there enough people out there with enough great ideas that with a little bit of guidance could become a big company? Yeah, definitely. I don't think that's any concern um, at the moment. I think at Techstars, we're lucky enough to be able to get applications from some of the best and brightest people in the world. So why wouldn't we expect there to continue to be new, great companies being formed? Right. And what about AI? Obviously, a lot of hype still. How is that factoring into your 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 scouting? Is that sort of is it is it lessening or or where where does that stand as far as the importance of an AI element for for companies? Probably about half of our cohort companies now are kind of actively positioning themselves as AI companies, where AI is kind of integral to becoming more efficient to making their solutions cheaper or better or whatever the case may be. You know, again. Uh, you know, I asked Michael Seibel the same question, like, what do you think about the AI thing? And I think his answer was really interesting. I kind of wanted to borrow it, which was, at the end of the day, it's kind of like asking, what do you think about the internet back in like 1999? Um, if a company did not have a kind of software or internet solution, you probably would have said, okay, you're a traditional business, you're going to be left behind. I think uh, AI is a technology, it's not kind of a, 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 a vertical, it's just something that kind of uh, enables um, the solution to be more efficient. So his point of view was if you have a new technology that makes things more efficient, why wouldn't you be using it? Um, unless you have a really good reason, you should be using it. So I think I kind of ascribe to the same thing, which is it's not a vertical. It's not like AI is a vertical. It's just a technology. And the question is, how are you using the newest technologies to do what you're trying to do more efficiently, more cheaply, better, et cetera? Got it. Okay. This has been a great conversation, mm -hmm. um, Gary. Thanks for it. Uh, we usually do a, just one thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, first, you know, what is one tip you give all entrepreneurs who are considering accelerators? Considering accelerators? Um, so now I'm going to quote from another one of the speakers in my class. I am your co-founding co partner of uh, Floodgate 
who invested uh, as early investors in Lyft and also in Twitter. And it's really try and explain to the investor, what is the wave that you're riding? So going back to the AI question, what is it that's happened recently that means that there's a new opportunity, whether it would have been smartphones in 2008 with uh, Airbnb and Uber, or now AI, what has happened recently, whether it's a demographic change, a regulatory change, a technological change, that's unleashing a new wave of opportunity and that you're going to be the founder that's going to be able to ride it to the end, right? The why now question, right? Why could this have not happened five years ago? Why should it not happen five years from now? Um, I think a lot of founders, when they're pitching, just give you a generic pitch. Hey, you know, like people are hungry, so I created a restaurant. Yeah, but like, there are hundreds of other restaurants out there. Like, what are you doing now that can only be done now? Like, that's what people are really looking for, right? Because that's the only way you're going to create like, a billion-dollar business is if there's a new wave that's been unleashed, right? And then the second bit that I thought was really great from what she said is, and what's the unique insight? A lot of founders kind of don't realize that, especially when you're reviewing 2,200 applications on the case of YC, you know, 27,000 applications, you're seeing a lot of the same things over and over again right? Um, they may be slight variations, but it's kind of the same problem and a very similar solution. The question is, what's the unique insight that you have that no one else has, right? And if you can have both things, an explanation of the why now, what's happening now that we're, we need to kind of hurry up and kind of get involved because something has changed, as well as, and why you, what's the unique insight that you have that no one else seems to have been able to um, glean? those two questions are probably gonna help you a lot in your application. So don't send in generic applications explaining what your product does. Uh, send in an application that explains why is this gonna be a billion dollar opportunity because of this wave and what's the insight that's gonna help you to differentiate from your competitors. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's another question that I think all entrepreneurs are, are pondering. Uh, what's one way that entrepreneurs should be leveraging AI? Oh, that's, uh, I wouldn't be able to answer that because it really depends on the problem that they're trying to solve. Um, but I think that the, I'm going to turn the question around, which is um, why shouldn't you be leveraging AI if you have a solution, right? Like all of the companies in the world are trying to figure out how they're going to leverage AI to be more relevant. And again, I think about it, you know, when I was at Telefonica, like one of the big questions was, you know, if Telefonica continued to operate the way it had in the past, eventually they would become uh, a dinosaur, right? Um, so, and, and then they have to figure out, so how are we going to use mobile technologies? How are we going to use big data? How are we going to use, I think all companies, not just startups, all companies should be thinking. So if there's this new technology, just as there was, you know, now we would think of companies weird if they didn't have like a website, you know, if they didn't have certain, you know, a presence on Google, uh, local or whatever the case may be, if you couldn't find them on Google, I think they should be thinking about AI in the same way, which is like, it's not like, why should you be using it? It's why shouldn't you be using it? I think that's probably the question. Got it. And what about, um, you know, a lot of uh, folks are now using it for presentations and applications and proposals. So are you seeing that um, in your uh, inbound? And is that well, a good I, thing or are you concerned? What advice would you give for, you know, for entrepreneurs it, who are it, just leveraging it? I mean, I think it's a great thing. You know, ChatGPT, I was kind of like skeptical that I bought like the subscription to four, you know, when I'm doing presentations not my uh you know kind of presentation for the class but if i have to like uh, research michael seibel i can literally say to chat gpt you know hey i'm a professor at yale law school i'm kind of interviewing a recent alum his name is michael seibel i want like 10 questions that do that focus on five or six different areas and i'll tell the areas and chat gpt will give me really great questions as well as a great intro 
So at the end of the day, again, it goes back to being a productivity tool. Like you can use it to do a lot of things that before it would have been a Google search and then looking for templates, or whatever, use it. Why not? Like what, the question is, why shouldn't you be using it? Like don't feel guilty if you're using technology to be more productive. Like just make sure you're being more productive. Got it. Got it. This has been, this has been really great. So we usually end, uh, Gary, with a poem or a saying or a quote. What would you like to share with, with our audience? Yeah, no. So when I was a young kid, people always said to me, like, how'd you get this sense of self-belief? And I always attribute it to my aunt, Auntie Joy, and my parents and family, of course. But this one thing she told me, she's like, Gary, just remember, you're as good as any, you're better than many, and you're inferior to none. Right. And I think, like, I've taken that through everything I've done, like all of these different countries, changing professions. Every time you're in a room, I'm a black guy, I'm a gay guy, I'm an immigrant kid who grew up in the Bronx. Um, and I'm always like, it doesn't make a difference. Like, I belong to be here. You know, I belong here. I don't, no one is better than me, right? And I think like that kind of inner belief is essential to anything that you're going to do, but especially to be an entrepreneur. Got it. This has been great. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.